The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has been helping organizations like yours chart a path to energy's future since the first competitive energy markets were established at the turn of the 21st century. Things are wild out there. You are not sure how to make decisions, but C-Power's energy experts can work with you to help figure out those decisions and build a unique bridge to the future, a bridge that spans the grid of the past, crosses the uncertainty and transformations of the present, and leads to a future that's not set yet. Visit thecpowerway.com slash future to learn how C-Power can help guide you to energy's future. From Greentech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, the coronavirus shockwave continues with staggering losses of lives, jobs, and money. So many people applied for unemployment last week, five times more than ever before. It was hard for graphic artists to draw a Y-axis that would fit them all. We saw more claims this week. We're now at 10 million unemployment claims. With so much turmoil and uncertainty, we're going to dig back into some of the big themes of the week. First, a recap of stimulus activity. The day after we saw this huge jump in unemployment numbers, the federal government approved a boost to the economy, twice as large as any before in the history of the U.S. What was in that package? What comes next? Then, essential workers in energy, how grid operators and utilities are making sure that all important juice keeps flowing to your home or essential workplace. And finally, how the oil price shock may or may not impact renewables investment from fossil fuel majors. I am here with my two lovely co-hosts. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. She's there in her bedroom in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hello. How's everybody doing this week? Oh, great. Uh, you shared this awesome story last week about your son's proposal in a yoga class this week. Uh, what was this week? Did, did you actually witness the marriage already? No, no. This week, one of my kids was taking the afternoon walkabout with me, tripped and broke his foot. So now we have an injury. Luckily, we were able to get an x-ray done in an office rather than because I was no way going to take him to a hospital. I was just going to like bandage his foot myself. Uh, so he's in a boot for a little bit. But as he says, it makes social distancing easier. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is there in Bethesda, Maryland. He is the president of Generate Capital. He is there in his son's bedroom. Has has your son complained about you taking over his room yet? Oh, no. Like, he's one of those kids who wakes up in the morning, jumps out of bed and darts downstairs and doesn't come back until it's uh, bedtime again. <laughs> well, uh, here we are. Another week that feels like a month and a month that has felt like many years. We are all witnessing something very new right now. The global economy is at a standstill. There is no analog in the modern era, Moody's economist Mark Zandi told Ezra Klein this week. The length of the economic crisis is really crucial to how this is all going to play out. It's going to determine whether we're in a recession or a much deeper depression, and things are not looking good right now. So let's just do a check-in on the spending coming out of Congress as they try to address this current economic pain. A day after our episode dropped last week, lawmakers passed this $2 trillion bill. Nancy Pelosi called it a mitigation bill to help slow the economic meltdown and get resources to hospitals and to people and to companies. Uh, the next one or two bills, she says, will be recovery packages, so more infrastructure investments. 
supports for big oil and renewables were taken out of this third stimulus. There were a lot of fights about what to put in this bill. So what ended up in it and what comes next? Catherine, can you just recap this particular bill and what happened with the energy portions? Yeah, so it was $2 trillion. It ended up mostly giving, you know, healthcare workers what they needed, equipment to hospitals, funding for states, um, a lot of small business ability to get loans and to do something called Paycheck Protection Program that a lot of folks are applying for. And those are for businesses with fewer than 500 employees. So that's been really helpful to a lot of smaller companies. And then there are also the ability for larger companies to get loans. They're just not as favorable terms as they are for small businesses. And really all along, um, Speaker Pelosi had said, as well as the folks in the Senate, um, especially a majority of Leader McConnell had said, you know, anything else is outside of scope. Now, originally, McConnell had put in, you know, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve purchasing some some oil, which they backed off of when then Minority Leader Schumer said, all right, if you're going to do that, let's do some clean energy things. And we've got a whole list here we can go down for you. And they ended up just removing all of that from the scope. And Pelosi all along has been inundated with requests from like, you know, the drone industry and you name it. Everybody's been coming to her saying, we need funding to stimulate the economy for our piece of the industry. And she has said, no, this is out of scope for that last set of funding. But now when we look at like the next month or two, we can start talking about what would the next level, what would the next package look like and you know what could be considered in scope? So as I understand it, Nancy Pelosi was not pleased that uh, they were trying to shove a lot in this bill. And, you know, the optics weren't great. You did have a lot of Republicans who got up and railed against, you know, the the low carbon mandate for airlines and the renewable energy tax credits. Um, so there was a bit of gamesmanship there. Um, but but the question is, you know, what gets into the next bill? And I guess the, you know, I want to know what happens next, Catherine. I mean, are people gearing up for an infrastructure bill already? Or is this going to come much later in the year or even under the next administration? Yes, I think people really are gearing up. They're trying to be a little more thoughtful. And and actually, this does buy us a little bit of time to be to be more thoughtful about what could be in it and what could be a package that could make sense. And what are the programs that we could boost in funding um, that would really take us somewhere with clean energy and climate in a way that also deals with the economic situation and coronavirus situation. So it, there is going to be more thought put into it. Um, Two trillion is kind of the number that's been floated right now by the president and then also by Pelosi. Um, McConnell and Minority Leader McCarthy in the House have been downplaying that, saying, no, 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 we don't need to spend any more money on this stuff. And they, you know, all of the Republicans have been poo-pooing the idea of doing this for things like solar and wind. But I think there really is an opportunity to address the economic situation in a way that also helps clean energy technologies. And so I think a lot of people are trying to put some thought into what would that look like. So, Jigger, I want to go to something that you said last week that actually really changed my perspective on what comes next. There's a pretty simple framing here, and that is we either get climate-focused investments in this next package or we don't. And what you said is that there are all sorts of opportunities 
that aren't necessarily labeled as climate investments. These, this money will go to uh, federal spending authorities. It will go to states. It'll go to localities. And the people who are um, planning low-carbon projects or managing money already know how they can make these investments um, in biogas digesters, in uh, electric vehicle infrastructure, in any number of projects that, you know, for example, your firm might be investing in. So talk a little bit more about how that might play out as we look to this next bigger stimulus package. So I think that, you know, the first comment is that we had this $500 billion that went to large businesses in the last bill. And that's going to get multiplied 10x by the Fed. So now you have $4.25 trillion or something like that that the Treasury Department gets to use to, you know, shore up industries, right? And so I think that that money is fair game for the clean energy industry. I mean, the amount of money that we have in compost facilities, digesters, wastewater treatment plants, solar and wind plants, etc., um, are, is an enormous amount of money. And depending on exactly what the rules are for how the corporates get access to that money, we have the ability to apply for that money just like the next guy does, right? So so I think that there's a lot of folks gearing up for the money in the last bill. Separately, there was money, a lot of money that went to state and municipal governments um, in this last bill as well, about $250 billion. And a lot of that money also can be paired up with money that's in the existing budget around how we do things smarter and better, right? Because part of what we're trying to figure out is, is that a lot of basic services that the government performs now, they do inefficiently, right? We go to everybody's house, we pick up trash. Today, because the National Sword Program, which is um, China telling us that they no longer want our recyclables, San Franciscans are basically sorting out their garbage. And guess what? All of it goes into the same landfill, right? It just gets mixed back in, right? You could imagine the city of San Francisco saying, we're going to use some of this stuff to actually stand up a sorting facility that will actually, you know, turn this back into basic components, back into Nestle or PG, P&G or whatever else to buy. So I think that, so that's one piece of it from the last bill. I think from the next bill, you're talking about an enormous amount of planning that's been done. We talked about the planning that's been done by presidential candidates, and that's great. But I mean, when you think about green biz and some of the conferences they've had on circularity and, you know, the circular economy and all that stuff, many of these Fortune 500 companies have signed up to really large commitments, RE100, moving to 100% electric vehicles, moving to a complete circularity of their plastics, making sure that, you know, Coca-Cola and others have said they want to make sure that every plastic bottle that they use is 50% recycled. They have companies in their supply chain that are ready to go to actually provide those services, right? And so, so I just think that the level of specificity today is much higher from Fortune 500 companies who have really high-paid lobbyists in D.C. that can actually make sure that they ask for all of the things that they need. Yeah, and Jigger, to that point, all the collection, whether it's electronic waste or plastics, that is a huge job creator. And that could be extremely helpful when we're looking at trying to get all these people back to work. I would also mention that uh, the last Columbia Energy Exchange I listened to with Jason Bordoff, he interviewed Joe Aldi, who had worked on the stimulus bill during the Obama administration. And he made the point 
that interest rates are so low right now, this is a really good time to spend money. Um, and it will benefit us in the long run, just as Jigger says, it, it will leverage so much private sector financing that it is much, much cheaper to do it now. So this is a really good time to put money back into the economy while the interest rates are such that they are. So how is the fossil fuel industry going to show up to the table as we negotiate a much bigger infrastructure bill? We saw reporting this week that fossil fuel executives are going to go to the White House tomorrow, Friday, to meet directly with the president and probably talk about this bill uh, and what they can get in there. API is working overtime to, to see what they can get in this. The Trump administration, EPA, just abandoned enforcement of all environmental rules. That doesn't have anything to do with the stimulus, but it shows their commitment to supporting oil and gas uh, and polluters in any way possible. So the question is, what kind of leverage do these companies and these industries have going into this negotiation? Catherine? So Harold Hamm, who is quite close to the president and who's the like fracking magnet, basically wants to a tariff on Saudi Arabian oil. So he wants to penalize oil coming in to drive up the cost here. But I don't think everybody's on the same page. The folks in Texas want specific help for them. They're up to their eyeballs in debt already. And, you know, it's a little bit of a pyramid scheme down there where they pay off based on the next set of oil that they produce. And it's really hard for them to pay back anything unless they're constantly producing. But I think API and the American um, fuel and petroleum manufacturing folks are, are in a different place. So they're looking more at the regulatory construct and like, how are we able to get things done um, quickly um, without having to kind of re completely reconfigure the entire global oil market? So I think we should set the table uh, slightly differently. I think, um, so if you read the API letter, the amazing thing about the API letter, the open letter to Congress, is that they don't mention any of their companies. In fact, the only positive things they talk about is Tesla, Apple, Bloom Energy, and BYD. So, like, I think first we have to acknowledge how amazingly awesome it is that they can't highlight anything that their own companies are doing to actually help with this COVID process. They're highlighting stuff that clean energy companies are doing to, to help with ventilators and other stuff. So let's just start there, right? I think the second thing is that, look, the shale oil patch is a very important part of our economy. So for all the people who are like anti-fracking and want the whole industry to die, it's 3.6 million people and it is a lot of the economy. It's probably something on the order of like 20% of all the high yield debt in the country, right? It's a lot of money that flows through these local economies and it would be devastating to the states that they're in. So we should show a little bit of humanity, I think, on all those areas. The, the next piece of it is that at $10 a barrel, because remember where we are right now, the Brent oil price doesn't matter, right? So 25, whatever the dollars per barrel it is. 27 today. Like what matters is, is at the different nodes that they're selling it. In some places in the US, the price is negative. So in fact, you have to pay people to take your oil because the pipelines are so jammed that they're saying, we won't even accept your oil at this node unless you pay us to take it. So the price was negative 19 cents at some of the nodes, right? So now the only way to get $27 is to pay Warren Buffett a ton of money and to 
train that oil all the way to some other port, which costs you a lot of money, right? And so these guys are flatly on their back, right? Second, they've got $26 billion worth of high-yield bonds coming due this year, right? And so if they don't pay those off, they're definitely dead. And so my sense is Secretary Mnuchin is going to use his $4.25 trillion to refinance that debt. That doesn't mean the stockholders are are bailed out. So the private equity firms who've invested in the stock are still going to zero. Because even if they refinance out the high yield debt and give them more time, unless the Saudis and the Russians come together and make a deal, $27 oil at Brent and then negative pricing at these different nodes doesn't even allow these people to cover operating costs, let alone pay off any of their debt, right? And so the crisis is really real here in the oil patch. And I do think that there is a level of support that they do need, and it allows us to actually cut the deal that we need to cut for the rest of our industries. So, Jigger, what do you think about the Trump administration, especially the president, has had a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia? How do you think that's all going to play into what we're going to have to do for our own producers here? I think it's a very complicated, right? The the president is clearly not knowledgeable about anything, as we all know. And so ultimately, the Saudis and the Russians are saying, we are producing 20 million barrels a day too much oil, right? That's the latest from Goldman Sachs. And so when you put that in comparison, pre-COVID, we were at 100 million barrels a day. And then at that infamous meeting, they were talking about cutting 1.5 million barrels a day. We now need to cut 20 million barrels a day of oil production in order to actually bring supply and demand in balance. We are filling everything with oil right now. Every tanker, every like, you know, big old facility at Cushing, right? Everybody's coffee cup is full of oil, right? Like that's why we need the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to get filled up. Like it actually can handle another 90 days or 100 days of oil. So we need to actually fill it up. But like... Like we are in a situation right now where they clearly are gunning for the shale industry, the Russians and the Saudis. So I don't know how the Trump administration is going to deal with that without actually threatening Russia and Saudi with something that will cause them to bend to their knees. And if they don't bend to their knees, they are saying, look, the Saudis can handle this for probably about two years. I think the Russians can actually handle it for far longer. Funny enough, I think a lot of people think the Russians are weak, but I don't actually think they are. And so the shale guys are the ones who can't last nine months. And so ultimately, I don't see any end in sight. My sense is this goes on through the end of the year. And then once all these guys have declared bankruptcy, the deal might be that the Russians and the Saudis get to own the shale patch, right? They might actually come in as the investors into the, the recapitalized companies um, because BP, Shell, Chevron, and Exxon are on their back too. I don't think they can afford to pay and recapitalize these companies. So last question, Catherine, what's next for the renewables folks? The the you know, the lobbying efforts and the trade groups, they're all showing up to this. What are they what are they gunning for? What is their strategy? I think there's been a lot of talk as we've mentioned before about the investment tax credit and production tax credit and trying to get direct payments instead of uh, using tax equity which would be pretty interesting and if you could do that in a for a variety of other technologies that could also be very helpful. I think when we talk about infrastructure, we also have to think about resilience because a lot of the issues that 
were ongoing before this virus have not stopped. So we're going to still have wildfire season. We've talked about this before in California, and you're still going to need to do things that will enhance resilience. And I think that can fall into the infrastructure bucket, too. So I'm hoping to see some of that. Um, obviously, I've been working a lot on the National Climate Bank to try to get that funded so that we can get leverage public and private sector capital in areas that really, really need it. Um, LIHEAP was funded in the last um, stimulus, that $2 trillion, to help people pay their electric bills. But maybe weatherization or some other program like that would be good. I think we should look at what was successful out of the last stimulus, even though it wasn't nearly enough money to see what we can fund. So like the loan program was not successful, but RPE was successful. So let's figure out like what what can we do that's going to really be meaningful and that if we do have a change in administration, we'll be able to have some execution on that in the next administration. The final piece of this that I want to table for a future conversation, because I think it warrants a much bigger discussion, is how are we going to help people. And Jigger made a point in the last episode about, you know, the most vulnerable in society really getting the short end of the stick. And since the 2008 financial crisis, inequality has only gotten worse in this country. And this crisis has really laid bare um, just how bad things are for the most vulnerable people in this country. And so uh, inevitably, these bills need to address people in the workforce who are not getting the protections that they need. And I think that there's this interesting conversation about how these industries can serve people and make their lives better. So we're obviously taking an industry focus because that's what we do. That's how we frame these issues. But I also want to recognize that that this is a big piece of the conversation. And I think it warrants you know a, a much broader approach to this next set of bills as we talk through it. And the one piece of advice I would give to people on this topic is to literally stop talking to economists. They don't know what they're talking about. They've never known what they're talking about. And the fact that they actually haven't modeled this scenario when we were talking about pandemics for the past 20 years, and I just watched Outbreak again, like, is ridiculous, right? And so I think that there are so many smart people, and for whatever reason, economists are given this position of authority above everyone else, and they don't deserve that position. There are a lot of really smart people you should be reading and listening to, and they actually have really good thoughts of how to deal with this in a more equitable way. And economists are largely the last people to provide any value in this area. Oh, I think Ingrid had booked Paul Krugman for the next episode. Should we cancel him? Yes. <laughs> yes, him and those idiots at Freakonomics. <laughs> Well, let's take a quick break here before we move on to our secondary topics. Uh, look, it's it's crazy out there. You really just don't know what the energy markets are going to look like. You're trying to figure out what your company's planning looks like. But energy is a core component of your business. And you need to figure out, is it the right time to invest in distributed generation? How do you earn revenue in your region's energy market by investing in demand response? How do you maximize those earnings? Well, our sponsor, CPower, is here to help you work through those decisions. They've been helping organizations figure out how to engage with energy markets and make money since the first competitive energy markets were established at the turn of the 21st century. And they're going to help you build that bridge to energy's future, whatever it looks like. Visit thecpowerway.com slash future to learn how CPower can guide you across the bridge to energy's future. Well, let's turn now to how America is running vital infrastructure like electricity systems. You know, I definitely try not to take electricity for granted in my normal life. 
But I think a lot of us, even those of us who may not be thinking about electricity like we do, are really thankful for it right now when a lot of life's luxuries outside our homes have disappeared. The lights inside our homes feel like an extra special luxury. And around the world, people have spontaneously been cheering health workers and grocery store workers. You know, it's, it's not romanticizing. It's just gratitude. But how are utilities and grid operators keeping the electrons flowing and performing the same kind of service while making sure workers are safe? Let me just pile in on the gratitude here. I mean, if you're a worker out there in the field operating any kind of critical energy infrastructure to keep our lives running, I speak for all of us when we say thank you, like truly thank you. Um, And Catherine, I know you worked in the field for a utility. Many of our listeners will know that about you. Can you just talk about what the job is like, you know, working out in the field for for an electricity company? And what are the risks involved in a scenario like this? Oh, so I was never in a scenario like this. Um, (laughs) And certainly the risks are different depending on what kind of job you have. If you're in a customer service job where you're mostly answering phones or when you're, if you're out, like I was out designing projects. So I was, you know, with my staking hammer and, uh, and often kind of involved in the, in watching the construction of projects that I had designed. And, you know, there were instances where like there would be a terminal pole that would blow and we would all have to dive and duck for cover. I mean, some of the, I mean, this stuff is really dangerous. And the folks who work on hot wires, you know, who don't de-energize the wires and have to be really suited up, those are extremely dangerous jobs. The folks in the control rooms that are, it's like being an air traffic controller where you really have to be fully on all the time. And the good news is that utilities and system operators, and I've I've visited uh, PJM's system, I've been into Cal ISO's system uh, control room, they all have two control rooms. <laughs> so they don't just have one, but they have two, which is actually really handy in a situation like this, because they can have two separate shifts that don't have to intersect um, in any way physically. So they can keep those two control rooms going and split their shifts up. And a lot of those operators are doing so, certainly in New York and in California and some of the larger utilities that I spoke to are all able to do that. So let's stop you right there and talk about the control rooms for both utilities and for grid operators. So I don't know, many of you have probably seen pictures of or been inside some of these control rooms for regional grid operators. There are these massive open rooms with a lot of desks crammed together with a giant, you know, interactive board on a on a wall. There's usually some glass windows behind them so you can look down um, and see what they're all doing. But they're all working, you know, fairly close together. And of course, this is, you know, not good for social distancing. So grid operators are figuring out how to space these people apart. As you said, Catherine, how to change shifts without interacting with each other in person. I know you have been talking to folks about the changes in protocol. Has this been a pretty dramatic shift in in how these grid operators are currently running? It has, but they're able to do it because of the way the system has been set up with two separate control rooms, often in two very different places. So I, one person I reached out to was Gil Quinones, who's the CEO of NIPA, the New York Power Authority. They're the largest state-owned utility in the U.S., and they produce 25% of the electricity in New York and own and operate a third of the transmission system. So they're kind of the backbone of the New York power grid. 
And Gil is really good at this. He's sort of the coordination point with the governor for a whole host of systems, including getting medical workers to where they need to go. And I don't know if you all remember, but Gil was also kind of the coordinator with the Puerto Rico recovery as well when their system went down. But what he said they're doing is they have sequestered about 85 power plant control room operators and transmission control center operators for four weeks with a with a check-in after two weeks. Um, they have very good cooperation with their unions, with IBEW and UWUA. They've, they tested all their operators before sequestration. They're doing only the things that they have to do on the must-do capital and O and M work, so like reliability and safety projects. Um, and if workers can't maintain the six-foot distancing, then they have to suit up and wear you know full protective gear. And they are very much about, and, and as you say, the control room has a zillion different um, screens. Some of the screens are weather screens that show where the weather systems are. All, some of them are transmission line screens. They have one for every single power plant. They have one for demand second by second. And what they're doing in New York certainly is staying in close contact with all the generators and with Ontario to make sure that everybody in the system knows what's going on. And if anybody has trouble, they can immediately divert either personnel or system resource to that that portion of the system. So they are in a very coordinated system right now. And uh, Gil has you know, like daily um, briefings where he gets online and talks to folks and hears concerns and just makes sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to. So you can't run a grid via Zoom then? Well, he has these great videos uh, <laughs> of, of himself talking to the employees, which are which are really helpful and, and helps keep everybody informed and let everybody know kind of what's going on so that at all times they have situational awareness. So what about utilities, Catherine? You went through how grid operators are changing. What about individual utilities? Yeah, so I reached out to Jill Anderson, who actually used to work in New York um, and is now the Senior Vice President of Customer Relations at Southern California Edison. And she had a whole nother take on what utilities have to deal with. You know, in addition to the control rooms and people actually having to stay there, janitorial staff not being allowed to come in, splitting shifts so someone's always there. Um, in addition to that, she has to deal with, you know, what happens when checks are mailed. Someone has to pick up the mail. They have to deal with actual paper that people need to process. And they were lucky in that they already had about 160 customer service agents working from home. So they knew how to set up from an IT standpoint, all the systems for home. So they were able to, with some pretty Herculean IT efforts, and I would just say the IT folks have been pretty important to all of this too, to in two days have go from 160 agents to almost 500 working from home with full access and very secure access to all the systems they need to keep all, everything going, to process payments, to make sure that they suspend disconnects, that they have alternative payment plans, and to manage all those programs that they do every single day. Catherine, did you see that meme that went through the internet where they were like, who's the champion for IT system upgrades at your company? It was like CEO, CFO, COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, these folks have had to do some pretty interesting things. And as we know, the internet has been really strained. All of our systems 
Um, I know Zoom has been crashing routinely. As soon as as soon as all the West Coast people come on at noon, the whole thing goes down. Um, and so they have to have some really secure and strong systems to make sure that everything runs properly. You know, we have been very critical of utilities for a variety of reasons on this show, but I'll echo the sentiment that I have seen on social media. Uh, you know, a friend of the podcast, Brandon Smithwood, said this, and, and others have, have said the same thing. Like, utilities have done a really good job adapting to this, and they have had contingency plans in place. And at a time when the federal government has so failed miserably to plan for this, utilities have been prepared, they've had plans in place for years, and they're acting on them pretty well. So I think we should give a nod to them. Nod. <laughs> Actually, that's what they do best. They're really good at this. That is their job. In a lot of ways, we we ding them because they aren't willing to do all these step changes and creative things when this is the kind of thing they do really well. Look, I totally agree with you. I think every utility person that I've ever met is really well organized for power outages for these types of events. I mean, they are just so good at planning for these kinds of events. In fact, I bet you a lot of these people had pandemic plans um, that they had been practicing. So I I think the utility workers are heroic, and I think this stuff is fantastic. All I'm like saying is that I think you guys should be a little bit careful, because when the stimulus bill comes out, and we go to war with EEI on what we actually want to do on decarbonization, where we might see another side of this thing. Like This is our moment to actually completely revolutionize the utilities. This is the moment, right? We passed 100% clean energy bills. We're getting a whole bunch of new money. You've got electricity sales that are down. Remember in Italy, commercial sales are down 70%. Residential sales are up 70%. And industrial sales are down 20%. And so their overall revenue picture is down 15% for the whole country. And you're seeing similar things play out a little bit less in the United States. And so this is the moment where we have the ability to integrate grid 2.0 technologies, things like smart wires and that kind of thing. We actually finally can realize the promise of smart meters, which was never quite fulfilled for the customer side of things. It was clearly fulfilled on the utility grid operation side of things, right? But like, like customers want to know how much electricity are they using? Can they actually have an app that actually tells them that, right? I think that that we are, they are doing an extraordinary job during the crisis right now. But also remember, this crisis is going to be a year long. This crisis does not end until we have a vaccine where you have 100 million doses and everyone gets one, which is probably next May. And so, so this is something that, you know, we're all flattening the curve for a couple weeks here, maybe another couple weeks. This is going to happen for another 12 months. Yeah, so what's interesting as another kind of strain on a utility like SoCal Edison is the issue of wildfires and that preparing for what happens during the course of the year, Jigger, is is really critical. They have to keep doing it. They have to keep hardening their system. And what they're finding is that the the definition of what a critical customer is, is has completely changed now because of the virus. So they have to implement much more distributed energy resources. They have to do many more creative things to make sure that they continue with their wildfire mitigation strategy while maintaining customer reliability. And you know, it is really hard to do that. I mentioned that these folks that work on hot wires, that is some of the most dangerous work you can do because of the voltages they have to deal with. And that's what they're looking at because they can't just take down 
for six or eight hours at a time, a bunch of folks so that they can, you know, restring a wire or replace a bunch of poles from wood to ceramic, they have to do a lot of this work hot. And it is really hard to do. And it's really dangerous. And that's just another stress that's put on the utilities in in areas where they're going to face not just virus, but all sorts of issues that have to do with climate and weather events that are not going to go away. I sympathize with what you're saying, Catherine, and I totally agree with you. I just, my my comment is just more that we spent five months working with the utility companies on this RFO to put in microgrids. And, you know, they basically just last week announced that all the microgrids came in at 17 times what they thought the cost would be, while we're, you know, rolling out enormous numbers of microgrids for Walmart, Albertsons, all these other companies. Like, it's just, it's inconceivable to me that we are going into the public safety shutoff season again, with almost no additional preparation this time around than we had last time around. Most of the hardware was has gone in directly to consumers and customers and the utilities RFO process was completely broken. And in fact, I think it was, I think it was actually destroyed by, you know, Marin and some of the CCAs who decided not to play ball with some of that stuff. But either way, like, I just think that going, having this COVID crisis and going into the next season of public safety shutoffs without more hardware in place just seems criminal. Yeah, I agree with that take also. So what we've been talking about is what the utilities are able to control on their side. But the piece that they really need to also open up on is allowing third parties to come in and offer solutions to their customers, because that is the most efficient way they're going to get a lot of this stuff built. Let's move on over to our third topic. Uh, We're going to talk about the oil market apocalypse and what it means for low carbon investments. Before the pandemic, it seemed as though every week was bringing another game changing announcement about investment in low-carbon energy. The energy transition was really reaching this new stage where clean energy was the default resource, the default investment space. If you'll remember, we started the year off with a look at how a company like BP was suddenly committing itself to a low-carbon strategy. Now all of that is up in the air, not just for BP, but most other oil companies. So how does this shift their investment calculus? Jigger? 2020 is going to be a devastating year for companies in the oil sector. Are they going to start to renege on their clean energy commitments? Most certainly, right? I mean, I think that when you think about how this goes, um, you know, you've got, pick a number, let's call it $25 billion worth of CapEx by, um, by oil major that they have to allocate. And you would think that the way they would allocate it is based on returns, right? That's what a normal person would think about. But in fact, what they do is say, well, here's the amount of money we need for maintenance capex, right? So this is just the stuff we need to do from oil that's flowing now that where systems are breaking and we just need to fix it, right? Um, And then they then go to like, here's the, the oil investments we think are actually really strategically important and we need to keep them going for the next five years. Because remember, they it sort of takes them five to 10 years to get something online, right? So stopping halfway in between sometimes just feels unnatural for them. And then, you know, you've got another layer of promising projects and then you've got renewables, right? And then, and then more speculative stuff like oil sands. And so like we're sort of in the investments with oil sands, like, you know, like, we're not actually competing with the entire stack. So if they lose half their money, 
which is where they're at right now, then, you know, renewables gets thrown out with it, right? And I think one of the challenges I have is that, remember, when we talked about this last time, the current investments that they've made at $60 barrel of oil um, are already single-digit returns, right? So shale, oil sands, deep-sea drilling, all of that Arctic, that's all single-digit returns. Now that oil is at $27 a barrel, that stuff is barely at 0% rate of returns, right? Our stuff is still fantastic rates of returns. So you'd think that we would actually take priority, but no, they're all retrenching. I had seen where Barnard Looney of BP is sticking to his guns on this. The proof will be in the pudding, of course, but I think some of them that have to operate much more in the EU and globally are still feeling pressure from those regulations and um, and climate commitments. So I think some of them are gonna are gonna stay on track, while others, especially those in the U.S., may not. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I can tell you that the the venture arms of all of these companies basically put out term sheets in February, which they've all retracted. So for whatever that's worth, right, all those yeah. companies that got term sheets are no longer getting money. And then when you think about the the assets they thought they were going to put on their balance sheet, they're saying out to people and saying, hey, you know, if you guys want to fund these projects instead, we'd love for you to fund these projects instead, right? So, I mean, I think they're in a, they're in a conserving cash position right now. Um, and, you know, I think that I, – I think Bernard Looney's heart's in the right place. So I don't think he's um, – lost interest in the transition. I just think that when you think about the political demands on him, where people within the company are saying, these projects are essential to the core of BP, you cannot zero out this budget, right? And I think that he's he's in the middle of that, right? I mean, if it was me, I would zero out those budgets. Why? Because you own that oil today and you own that oil tomorrow. Pumping it out of the ground and selling it for 10 bucks a barrel is ludicrous, right? Like it doesn't make any sense to pump that stuff out of the ground, particularly when all of the the vessels around the world are filled with oil. You actually don't even know where to put the oil. That's the funny thing is that we're actually going to run out of places to put the oil within 30 days, unless the SPR opens up and then that becomes 90 days. And so we're in this weird situation where all these guys are pumping oil out of the ground and they literally have no place to send it. I've got some in my coffee cup right here. Does <laughs> your coffee taste like oil? <laughs> I, li- I like a dark French roast, so sometimes it does. Let's turn now to a piece of analysis from Wood McKenzie. Wood McKenzie is, of course, the large consultancy that owns Green Tech Media. And, uh, they, they, you know, after the oil price collapse, they looked at oil company investments and they modeled this at $35 a barrel. Uh, oil prices now are below $30 a barrel, so that calculus has changed. But what they said is that low-carbon commitments you know, within the company and operations wide would probably take a hit, but that renewables projects, particularly wind and solar projects, the lower risk solar and wind projects will definitely compete with uh, oil and gas projects, you know, even at $35 a barrel. So they don't think that those projects will take too much of a hit. And even if they do, the oil majors represent a couple of percent of global solar and wind development. So it's really not going to have this major impact across the, the global industry. Jigger, what did you think of that modeling? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable. I think that the most salient point is that the oil and gas industry are immaterial to the solar wind market. I think that the the part that I continue to struggle with with oil and gas is that they're actually not financially sophisticated. And so when you start to see all these changes to the market around tax equity, for instance, and who's got it and who doesn't and how you should structure deals and the easiest way to get it right now might be a sale lease back with a bank where you guarantee the payments, right? The treasurer of BP is saying, what are you talking about? Like, we don't do any of that stuff. I, I don't even know how to prioritize your conversation right now, right? And 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 that just means that the people who work on these issues are outsourcing this stuff to people like us, right? And so what ends up happening is when you actually have to be super nimble in the project finance space, because the group that you were turning to to help you with your needs are no longer active in the tax equity markets, and now you need to move to somebody else, you might not have a long relationship with them, etc. And that expertise doesn't sit in-house in the oil industry. And so so they're outsourcing it to other people, right? And so I think that the, the, the struggle I have with the oil industry is, and I continue to say this, is that they know full well that they're actually not good at this. That like they're not, you know, it's one of those things where when you enter a business, it's sort of like the late Jack Welsh said with GE, right? You want to be number one or number two in every business that you operate in, right? They know that they're not number one or number two in any of these businesses, right? And so then when when the scalpel comes out and you're trying to cut because oil prices are down, you're like, we're not actually good in this business. And we're not actually getting better in this business. So do they sell off their stake in the solar company they purchased into? Probably not, because that solar company is probably doing fine without BP and is probably saying, great, we have a shareholder. But do they actually lean in with more capital? The answer is probably no, right? And that's the part that I think we all struggle with because, and it's true even with CCS technologies. Remember, like, when you look at Occidental Petroleum, where their stock price is today, I mean, they own a lot of of the CCS efforts in the US. But the same thing is true with Denbury. Denbury stock price is at 18 cents a share, right? And they own $500 million worth of the most strategic CO2 pipelines along the Gulf Coast, right? So if you actually wanted to figure out what a strategic asset looks like, it's the $500 million that Denbury owns. And so the question really becomes, are they going to reinvest in that? Probably not. Right, all of the CCS tech efforts that they were doing with big ethanol plants and, you know, big ammonia fertilizer plants, a lot of that stuff's on hold because, in general, even though these are high return projects, I mean, to be clear, many of these projects you put a hundred million dollars in and you get four hundred million dollars worth of forty five Q credits back, right? So these are pretty lucrative deals, but it's probably not going to become the first priority when everyone's in a cutting mode. Yeah, so that's only dealing with the clean energy projects and investments, too. They're in their own new oil and gas projects. Only about a third of those look like they would get done because even at $35 a barrel, 85% of the projects that are going to return less than 15% IRR, which is sort of a typical hurdle for the industry. And then 75% of them won't even cover the cost of capital, which is assumed to be about 10%. So it just looks like for their new projects on the table now, even for oil and gas, they aren't going to happen, which... I, I wonder in the end if this will just keep more in the ground for a while. Well, we hope so. I mean, I think for those people who are interested in this topic, I would recommend you read uh, Gail Tverberg. She has a great blog called Our Finite World, and she talks through a lot of these issues. Because, for instance, like to make all these numbers work so they don't leave it in the ground and they take it out of the ground, you kind of need oil to be 70 or 80 bucks a barrel. 
Well, guess what? $70 or $80 oil right now would be terrible for the world economy as we go through COVID, right? And so in some ways, we think our lucky star is that a lot of poor people in this country who have to drive places, you know, are only paying $1.99 a gallon for gas. And so we're in this really complex macro environment where the oil industry in some ways, needs to do its part and keep oil prices low during this crisis, but at the same time needs really high prices to capture unconventional oil. Remember, you know, conventional oil, which is the stuff that Saudi Arabia just puts a straw in the ground and sips out of the ground at $2 or $3 a barrel uh, lifting costs, that stuff's gone, right? So we are down to about 50 million barrels a day globally of stuff that looks like that. Everything else that we've added, shale, deep sea drilling, you know, oil sands, all that stuff is unconventional oil. And that stuff trades at like $50 a barrel just to like find it and get it out of the ground. And so you need $80 to actually make a decent profit on it. And so I think the entire oil industry model is at risk because the, the national oil companies, the Saudis, the Russians they feel like they can live with 50 and $60 oil. And I don't think most of the oil majors see an attractive pathway for shareholders at 50 or $60. I feel like we've seen this a few times, though, Jigger. We, we've, we've claimed the end of the oil industry for several different times. And do you think this is materially different? Well, I think that, you know, everyone who listened to Bill McKibben and divested over the last two years saved a boatload of money. And so if you're Norway or other people and you divested, then you were like, thank God we dodged a bullet on that one. And, you know, and so I think a lot more people are going to divest after this crisis, right? And so, yeah, look, like I get the fact that muscle memory is tough, right? And so folks have been investing in oil for 30, 40, 50 years and they're not going to stop just because of one little rough patch. But these rough patches keep coming and people keep losing money. And BP and Exxon are actually raising debt in order to maintain their dividend. They actually can't pay their dividend with money coming off of their oil profits. This was last year, forget about right now, right? And so they were increasing their debt load to be able to pay their dividend yield because they were so afraid of cutting their dividend and showing investors that they were showing weakness, right? I mean, I just don't see how this is sustainable. Everyone from Sarah, Cambridge Energy Research Associates, to, you know, to Wood McKenzie is saying that you need to be at 70 or $80 a barrel to make a sustainable profit and get a good risk-adjusted return. You think about what they're doing. These, com- these companies are working in Nigeria, in Azerbaijan, and in Russia, right? Like, to, to justify that kind of risk, you need 20% returns. You can't be living with 6% returns and working in those markets. You know, and so I just think that people understand that. They just thought they were critical industries and they kept going and they thought things would prepare themselves. But I think we're in a fundamental shift where the last holdouts are realizing that Jim Craner's greed from a month ago is right and that oil is no longer investable. Well, we could all use something free right now, even even fossil fuel executives. So let's let's hand out some free electrons. Uh, Catherine, what's yours this week? Yeah, so you know, my favorite topic is energy storage. So I just wanted to point to a couple, and I know everybody's going to be like, thank God she's talking about energy storage again. A mm. um, couple of things I wanted to point people to. One, which I, I think I've mentioned this this resource before. It's a DOE-supported resource. It's at the um, North Carolina State University, and it's Desire, D-S-I-R-E-U-S-A dot org. And they track 
all kinds of renewable energy, energy efficiency programs in every state. Uh, so it's a really great resource. They also are doing storage, and that's really helpful. You can look at where storage is by state, where policies are by state. And um, I would just point everybody to look at that because they have lots of great charts and maps and data. And the other piece of storage I would point to is that while we're hearing a lot in press, and I know we're going to talk more about people at some point about the solar and wind industry jobs that are at risk, there are also storage jobs at risk. And the Energy Storage Association, run by Kelly Speaks Bachman, has been doing some polling of its members in finding that behind the meter storage has about a 30% drop in, in projects, which is understandable because those are in, you know, inside buildings and you would have to, you know, deal with humans and be in too close a contact. So those I can, we, they can understand. Um, but over 50% of all projects have been delayed in some way. And at first it was the supply chain, but that is not the case now. It's a lot of it now about construction, permitting, offices that you need to interact with that are not open right now. So it looks like, you know, almost 40% delays of maybe six months or longer for projects. But one thing that Kelly was telling me that I thought was pretty interesting is that there are a lot of batteries out there that are ready to be installed that the EV industry is not taking because EVs have stopped being produced in a lot of ways because some of those manufacturers are being shifted to other items right now, like ventilators like ventilators <laughs> and so there are all these batteries so those could easily go to energy storage um, so there, there's kind of this interesting dynamic happening and there's a lot of information on the ESA website about that uh, Kelly has a blog and then she also has all of her survey results up there too so I would take a look at that Jigger what's your free electron so like many people I was fascinated by April Fool's Day yesterday and uh, the Extinction Rebellion um, put forward a fake website called a greenergoogle.com, which of course you can't actually access anymore. Like both Google and Microsoft and others have deemed it to be a like a a, a website that's like you know full of viruses or something. Um, but uh, like it's amazing how people like protect their own. But um, but basically what it said was. You know, we at Google recognize that we've been funding climate denialism for a long time. And like we got out of ALEC in 2014, we're now going to get out of all these other organizations. And here's exactly why we're going to get out of each organization. Here's the bad position they took on climate denialism, etc. And um, and a lot of people fell for it. I um, was told by many people that it wasn't real, particularly by Tim Latner. But I, um, but I still posted it on my LinkedIn and got a lot of people schooling me. Um, but I think that this seems like a light lift. It feels very easy for Google to actually make this true. Yeah. So for those of you who have been listening to us from Google, and Shale and Steven have believed in you for a long time where <laughs> I haven't, like, I actually think you could prove them right and me wrong by actually adopting all these measures. Sounds like a nudge for good, Jigger. <laughs> uh, I, I saw this last night, uh, probably, I don't know, nine or 10 o'clock last night. And I was on my phone and I read it on my phone. So I didn't see at the bottom of the page that it was a fake website. And I really believed it. And I tweeted it out. And I was like, I think I wrote, this is the, the, like the clearest messaging that you could imagine. Like it sets a template for other companies. And then within, I don't know, two minutes, everyone was like, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. And so I, I ended up deleting the tweet and then I sent out something else just indicating that I was fooled by it. And <laughs> I, 
thought I was going to be so angry if anyone sent out an April Fool's, but this one was particularly good. So um, I actually thought it was it, it was a really nice template for how to walk away from support of some of these groups. But alas, it's not going to happen. I think you and Shale both owe me dinner <laughs> over Zoom. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a cup of coffee with some oil in it. How's that? <laughs> I want the light, sweet crew. <laughs> Uh, so, well, I, I guess we have to wrap up with a, a continuation of last week's Free Electron. Triscuit came back on Twitter and confirmed that Triscuits are the electricity biscuit. So that story that we told last week is, in fact, true. I thought that was remarkable. And they even added, like, little emojis next to their name with a lightning bolt. And, you know, to actually, you know, advertise that they're from electricity. Yeah. Well, I thought that that was just a splendid story, and I'm glad to know that it was true. The other story is um, about Zoom. And we've been hearing in the last week a lot about Zoom hacking. So we're all living our lives on Zoom right now. And since we have a bit of a platform here, I wanted to let folks know who are probably either in academia or running big meetings at companies how to protect yourself because uh, a lot of folks are getting Zoom bombed. And uh, it's it's usually like hackers often with an extreme right-wing bent or part of hate groups that are getting on these large group chats, often, you know, groups of students who are listening to a professor and they're yelling racial slurs. Um, they're overloading the system and it's becoming more and more frequent. So more people are becoming victims of this. And I wanted to share some of the things that I was reading about today about how to make sure your privacy settings are correct. So you can, you know, disable guest screen sharing. If you're doing with big groups, you can require a host to be present to start a meeting, uh, use a personal ID to keep the meeting private and a password. And then there's also this waiting room function. If you have big groups and you have a list of folks who you know should be on there, you know, if someone signs into your meeting, you have to approve them. So we are using, I think, one of those today. (laughs) But they are particularly important for bigger groups um, because this is a phenomenon that is happening more and more frequently and you don't want to face it because it's really disruptive. So take some personal responsibility and check your privacy settings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor overseeing this show very early on the west coast thanks so much for being with us if you want to help support and grow this show send out the word on social media send a link to a friend or a colleague give us a rating review over at apple or stitcher and we have heard a lot about how podcast downloads are down well guess what we had a record month last month thank you for supporting the show and we hope that we can provide a service for you through this crisis and if you have ideas that you want us to you know digest and work through that will be helpful for you let us know on social media or send an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts we'll be here next week as always this is the energy gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy talk to you soon (laughs) 